Right, we have arrived now in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years have no end. And which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Friends, this is God's word, and it is good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide us to understand uh, understand it with clarity and to enjoy it. Uh, I pray that you would help us to behold wondrous things about your son as we read this word about him today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. We're in an age of spiritual fascination. Let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've been uh, learning about these drugs that are promoted on the internet, uh, that people take these drugs to try and gain some sort of spiritual experience or closeness to God. People want spiritual experiences so much that they're willing to take harmful substances into their body. Maybe more mildly, our culture has, uh, has an increasing awareness and discussion about mindfulness and meditation and transcending our own plane of existence. A third of our country describes themselves as spiritual but not religious. And this is really interesting. While belief in God last year hit an all-time low, according to a Gallup poll, 83% of our country feel connected to a higher power. More people in our country feel connected to a higher power than believe in God. We live in a spiritually fascinated time. And in one way, spiritual instincts like this are a good thing because they recognize that we were created for more than we can see and feel on this earth. But 
spiritual instincts and spiritual activities like this are misguided unless they're rooted in Christ. Because Christ has far more to offer than any spiritual activity or mindfulness exercise. Mindfulness might make you aware of your problems. It might even help you see that they're not that big of a deal. But it can't give you any power to deal with the deepest issues in your life. Often people that take drugs for spiritual experiences end up reporting visions of demons and elves that torment them. Belief in a higher power is worthless if that higher power isn't real. You might as well be believing in the tooth fairy. But Christ is real. He is not an idea. He is not a plane. He is not an energy. He's real. He's a savior. And he's not hiding from you. He's offering himself to you freely. And he proved his commitment to offer himself to you by giving his own life to pay for your sins on the cross. Friends, Christ is better than any spiritual force or activity, so worship him alone. That's the main idea I want you to take home today as we continue our journey through Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is better than any spiritual force or activity, so worship him alone. You remember last week we began our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and we saw that the main idea of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. And the author of Hebrews begins that argument, he begins that logical case in the first major section of the book, which will begin today, looking at how he believes Jesus is better than the angels. How does that fit into his message? How does that fit into his argument? You'll remember that the author of the Hebrews was writing to an audience of Christians who came from a Jewish background, who under the weight of persecution were were tempted to abandon the faith in Jesus and return to the old ways of Judaism for their family's approval and under the weight of the social pressures. A lot of Jewish people in the first century believed that angels had actually mediated the law to Moses. So God spoke the law through angels. And so there was an intense fascination with angels today, in, in their day. Just as today, there's often intense fascination with spiritual things. And so I think it's a good application for today, as we look at this text, to know that we can't just settle for being spiritual. We can't just settle for feeling good. We can't just settle for feeling something transcending this reality. We need Christ. Because a higher power isn't worth anything if it isn't real. What I want to do today is walk through verses 4 through 14. And what, what we see in this passage is the author is going to make a claim that Jesus is better than the angels. He's going to give three reasons why it's true, and then he's just going to summarize his argument with his verdict and show that Jesus is indeed better than the angels. So the first, he starts out making his claim there in verse 4. 
that Jesus is better than the angels. Specifically, in light of verse 3, because Jesus has died for sinners and risen again, he is greater than the angels. So verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That word superior, or sometimes in other Bible translations, it's translated as better. Jesus is better. It's a major word in the book of Hebrews. You'll see it come up a number of times, always to introduce major sections. It comes up a little more than a dozen times in the New Testament. Almost every one of its uses is here in the book of Hebrews. So his argument throughout the book is that Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. So that's his claim. That's what he's arguing. Jesus is better than the angels. How is he going to prove it? He goes on. His first reason to believe that Jesus is better than the angels is that Jesus is the Son of God. And he says that in verse 5. The Son of God is an incredibly important title for understanding who Jesus is. And yet, it's grossly misunderstood in our time. It's applied to Jesus dozens of times throughout the New Testament. And yet many people today have no idea what it means. Last weekend, we went out for evangelism, for Gospel and Grub after the service. And I don't know about your group, but I, went into, I ran into several people, maybe three or four people, who all said the same thing. I said, Jesus is God, or someone that I was with said, Jesus is God. And they responded immediately, Jesus isn't God, he's the Son of God. There's a lot of confusion about what that means. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Muslims today think that Christians believe when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the biological child of God. That God knew the Virgin Mary intimately and produced the child Jesus, the Son of God. Now, that's not what we mean when we say the Son of God. And even Christians are incredibly confused about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. A lot of systematic theology books or textbooks that you might read if you went to seminary or Bible college leave this title of Jesus completely untreated. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding about this incredibly important title for Jesus. But what he's arguing, what the author of Hebrews is arguing, is that the angels are inferior to Jesus because he is the Son of God. And he proves that with two quotations from the Old Testament. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now that's a quotation from the Old Testament from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an incredible song that God's people would have sang about the son of David rising up as a mighty king to crush all of God's enemies and reign not just as the king of Israel, but as the king of all the earth. It's an incredible poem. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it's about Jesus and that it gives us a picture of the son of God being appointed to reign as a king and to judge all of the earth. Or again, he continues, a second quotation. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There he's quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a promise to David. 
And God promised David that one of his descendants would always reign on a throne in Jerusalem. And the Israelites filled in that promise with all of their hopes and expectations that that son of David would come and would reign as the king over all the earth with perfect peace and justice. And the author of Hebrews takes that promise and he says that promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the ultimate son of God. What does it mean for the son of David to be the son of God? How would David have understood that when God tells him that your son will be my son? Two reasons. Number one, God is the one bringing him to the throne. God is generating him to the throne the way that we would generate children. And the second reason is that the son of David was to reign like God. He was to show God's perfect justice and compassion and mercy in the way that he ruled and reigned. In other words, the son of David was to be the son of God because like father, like son. And again, the author of Hebrews is making a point here that this quotation ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who is the son of God reigning as the king over all the earth as the heir of the promises to David. So what we see here in verse 5 is that when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, it means clearly that he is the king. But he's not just a king. What else does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Or to ask the question another way, what would be lost if the New Testament never called Jesus the Son of God and just used other names for him, like Lord and God, and Son of Man, and Word of God. What would we lose if we lost the title Son of God like that? Let me just highlight a few things, a few aspects of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. First, it means that he's eternal, or he's always been God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the arrow of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the Son of God did not come into being. He is the creator. Before anything was, Jesus is. He was the Son before creation. He was the Son before there was any world to rule over. And so clearly, being the Son of God means more than reigning as a king. The implication of this is that the Son of God is fully God. So it's wrong for people to say, Jesus isn't God, he's the son of God. That's like saying, watermelon's not a fruit, it's water. It has water and fruit. Jesus is the son of God, and that means that he's fully God. This is how Jesus' contemporaries understood his claims to be the son of God. John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So when Jesus' contemporaries heard him say, I am the son of God, they understood that to mean a claim to deity. And Jesus never corrected them, which means that's probably what he meant. He is the son of God. Because this is ultimately what led to his death. So he probably would have corrected them. Another reason is that Jesus hates blasphemy more than anyone. Jesus hates lies about God more than anyone does. And so he would have corrected them if they were grossly misunderstanding his teaching. 
The Son is fully God. He is able to do everything that God does because He is fully God. There is no authority that God has that the Son is excluded from. There is no power that the Son that, that, that God has that the Son does not have. So last year, I needed a new computer. And I, I was stuck, do I want a MacBook Pro or do I want a MacBook Air? Save a little, bit, a little bit of money on the MacBook Air. MacBook Pro would be a little more expensive, but it has a little more power maybe in theory. That's the idea. And I think some people think about Jesus as the Son of God like that. They think that he's like the God book Air, or like he's like the diet God. He's like God light. He's like Splenda. And it's not true. He is fully God. He is not God-light. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? It means he's eternal. He's always been God. Second thing it means, he is not a biological son of God. He's not derived from God in any way. Proof of this. First of all, Hebrews 1-2 says that he's the creator. Second reason, God is a spirit. He has no way to produce offspring the way that we do. He does not have a body by which he could impregnate Mary. And the the last thing, which I think is the most compelling, is that when the phrase son of something appears in the Bible, it's not always referring to a biological son. Sometimes it's referring to a son of wickedness, as in a person who's really wicked. And even in our own culture, we don't even use the word, the phrase son of something to refer to a biological child. For instance, we say things like son of a gun. That doesn't mean that someone was birthed out of a gun. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? It doesn't mean that he's a biological son of God or derived from God in any way. It does mean that he has a unique relationship with the Father that Christians have historically summarized as he's eternally begotten of the Father. What does that mean? Eternally begotten. Those are some $10 words right there. Let me give you a basic definition. The Father eternally, it's always been, it didn't happen at a point in time, eternally grants the son his life as the son. What does that mean? I copied that from my notes from seminary. That's why it doesn't make any sense. The father grants his son the life as the son. What does that mean? It means that his relationship with the father, which has always been, is what makes the son the son. And it also eternally distinguishes them. So why is he the son of God? Because God the Father is his God, is his Father. It means that he has a great inheritance to look forward to, as Hebrews chapter 4, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 mentioned. The son has a unique relationship with the Father. And finally, the son has a unique authority from the Father. So we've already seen that the Son of God is coming to reign as the King of all the earth, the Son of David, and also the Son of God will one day act as the judge of all the earth. John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The son is able to save and to judge. He's able to give life and he's able to justly take it away. Why? Because he's the son of God. So what on earth does any of that have to do with anything? How does that impact your life today? 
Well, first of all, most importantly, this is who Jesus is, friends. He's not an idea. He is mighty and powerful and wonderful. And he must be worshipped and glorified and enjoyed as the Son of God. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good example. He is not just a great biography that you could read about if you wanted to. He is the Son of God. You need him. He receives your worship, your prayers, your obedience as the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. So friends, look at him in wonder and faith, not indifference. Why would we ever give our lives for anything else? We will all be held accountable to our response to the Son of God because he's the Son of God. He's wonderful. And what should you say the next time Maybe you go out for a gospel and grab with us next week and someone says to you, Jesus isn't God, he's the son of God. What should you say? Well, first of all, you should ask them what they mean because there's a lot of different things they might mean. And then maybe you could read with them John 5, 17 to 19. I quoted a, a few different verses from there where Jesus claims to be the son of God and that's clearly shown to mean he is God. First reason Jesus is better than the angels, he is the son of God of God. Now, some of you are thinking like, man, he is talking about this for a long time, and there were a lot of bullet points on that screen. Some of you are like, finally, that is a good number of bullet points. I'm excited to copy those down. Friends, we we can't settle for a surface level knowledge of who Jesus is. We need to dive deeper. If you went to the pool, what would you want to do? Would you want to just like walk back and forth on the steps all day and be like, oh, my ankles are feeling really good? No, you'd want to dive in. You would want to get deep. You'd want to get deep. So get deep with Jesus because the deeper you go, the more wonderful you see him to be. Jesus is the son of God. The second reason he's better than the angels, he's the king of the angels. Second and third points won't take as much time. Don't worry. Some of you are like, man, we're having a members meeting after this too. I go, oh man. Second reason, Jesus is the king of the angels. Jesus exercises authority over the angels. They exist to serve him. So being fascinated with an angel is like being fascinated by the volume knob on your radio. It exists to serve the music that's playing from your radio. And he proves this with two more quotes from the Old Testament. And again, verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When Christ returns, every spirit, every angel will fall at his feet and worship him. It's important to remember that when we say the word angel in our culture, we typically think about these little babies with wings flying around and blowing a trumpet, and they look miserable all of the time. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about angels. That image, as far as I know, is completely foreign to the worldview of the Bible. Angels in the Bible were frequently warriors. They carried swords. They were massively large when they appeared to people. They were so stunning and horrifying that people would fall on their faces before them in fear and trembling. And those magnificent, powerful angels wielding swords of fire who, if they walked in today, we would all make for the back door. Those mighty, powerful ones will one day fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. 
verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So just as God, the sovereign creator of all things, commands the winds and the fires, he commands the angels. Whatever he commands, they do. They exist to serve the creator. People today are fascinated by angels. At my parents' house, they have an entire bathroom decorated with angels, and it's the weird baby kind. (laughs) But angels are inferior to Christ, so that fascination is misguided because angels were created by Christ. They exist to serve Christ. They're obedient to Christ. Don't be fascinated with angels. Be fascinated with Christ. And in the same way, other spiritual things like angels might be interesting, but if they don't bring you to Christ, they're misguided. Meditation might be interesting, but if it doesn't bring you to Christ, it's misguided. Psychedelics might be interesting, but if they don't bring you to Christ, they're misguided. Do you remember when Apple Maps first came out and it was a train wreck? Like it was telling people to like turn left off of a bridge and you could, it would never take you to your destination? Some people might say it still doesn't. In the same way, Apple Maps was worthless because it couldn't get you to the destination. And in the same way, Christ is the destination. And if spiritual things aren't taking you to him, then they're worthless. They're worthless. Spiritual things that don't bring you to Christ are like having a frozen pizza box without the frozen pizza inside of it. Sure, you have some really good instructions about how to cook a frozen pizza. You've got some great information, but you don't have any food that will keep you alive. All the single guys in the room are like, finally, I understand something he said today. (laughs) Friends, we look. We look for new spiritual things because we get bored, and so we're looking for something new, and we're looking for something exciting But friends, if you want real excitement in your spiritual life, then dive deeper into who Jesus is. Think about all the glories that Hebrews talks about, that he is the son of God. The point is not to find new ways to get to God because there is only one way. The point is to plunge deeper and deeper into who God is. Is And that's the secret to a wonderful, vibrant, life-giving, spiritual life. Not new experiences, not new methods all the time. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of the angels. And finally, number three, he's the never-ending King of all creation. The third reason he is superior to the angels is because while angels are created, Jesus is the never-ending King of all of creation. The Son of God will always be living. He will always be working. He will always be reigning as the Son of God. And so as we walk through the rest of this passage, I want to very quickly show you five aspects of the Son's life that are never-ending. And I want you to be amazed at who he is. First thing, his reign is never-ending. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Friends, the Son of God will never be dethroned. He will 
will always rule. And also, don't miss this, in verse 8, he's explicitly called God. Jesus is explicitly called God. So if you have any doubt in your minds that early Christians maybe didn't really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, just read verse 8. Jesus is called God, explicitly. Case closed. His reign is never ending. Second reason that Jesus, second aspect of Jesus' life that's never ending, his justice is never ending. Verse 8 continues, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus' authority is described as an upright authority. As in it doesn't waver, it doesn't do the wrong thing. It can't be blown away to corruption easily. Verse 9, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus will never compromise on what is right or wrong. You and I, or leaders that we admire, might be tempted to take shortcuts when it's convenient or helpful to us. Never so with Jesus. His justice is never ending. He will never turn a blind eye to sin. His reign is never ending. His justice is never ending. Number three, his happiness is never ending. Verse 9 continues, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The oil of gladness. It's as if happiness could be boiled down to a substance, to an oil, and it is smashed and poured all over Jesus' hair because he is that wonderfully, infinitely happy. And he's not just really happy. He's not just really glad. He's not just really joyful, but he is so joyful beyond all of his companions. Do you know what that means, friends? That means that Jesus is the happiest person that ever lived. If you want to find hope and healing from anxiety and depression, look to Jesus because he's the happiest person that's ever lived. And this happiness comes as a reward for his perfect justice. Sometimes our sense of right and wrong ends up stealing happiness from us often. You know, we know what's right, and so we're really frustrated when we don't get it. But Jesus is in complete control of everything. And so nothing is able to steal his happiness. Sometimes we get really angry and our happiness and our joy is stolen because we believe we're not getting what's due to us, Jesus sees the world with perfect clarity. He doesn't pridefully take things that aren't his own. We often have our joy and our happiness stolen by worries and anxieties. But Jesus perfectly trusts in God the Father. And he knows that God's will will always be done. And so the oil of gladness is pouring off of Jesus beyond all of his companions. Ah, friends, if you want to be happy, go to Jesus. It's radiating off of him. Don't read your Bible and, and walk away with this idea that Jesus is this stoic person who hates everyone and he's kind of grumpy. 
It's not true. He's happy. He loves you. His happiness is never-ending. His existence is never-ending. Verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. He makes a contrast here between Christ, the eternal creator, and his temporary creation, which is very fleeting, lasts even shorter than your laundry does. Christ's existence is never-ending. And finally, his victory is never-ending. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Every enemy of Christ will be defeated. There is nothing that can keep Jesus off of the throne or take away his reign or his justice or his happiness or his existence or his victory. And friends, that makes it absolutely insane to remember that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. The never-ending Son of God met his life, met his end at the cross. And he said, to be very clear about his authority, John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. The, the one who is God gave himself to bring you back to God. The eternally living one died to give you eternal life. The judge of all the earth gave himself to satisfy the demands of justice. The eternally happy one gave himself in great sacrifice so that you would know eternal happiness. Because Jesus, who's the only person who's ever lived perfectly just, never sinned, never did wrong, always loved his neighbor, died on a cross being punished, not for his crimes. He did not have any of them. Being punished for our crimes. You've sinned. You've earned a punishment. You've violated God's perfect justice. And so it must be paid for. Your sin must be paid for. And Jesus died to pay for it. Jesus died to pay for your sins and he rose from the dead to give you everlasting life so that if anyone looks to him in faith, they will find life. Some of you aren't Christians here today and you're thinking like, yeah, really? Like, really? Like, that sounds fine, but could he really do that? Yes, he's the son of God. Of course he can. Jesus is the never-ending king of all creation, giving himself for you because he loves you. Oh, friends, why would we not be amazed and astonished at this wonderful son? 
And so the verdict, Jesus is certainly better than the angels. Having seen the evidence, the author of Hebrews says in verse 14, are they not all, all those angels, are they not ministering spirits, servants, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels exist to serve Christ, not the other way around. So why would you settle for spiritual forces and spiritual activities when you could know Christ? Why would you play in a stream when you can plunge to the depths of the wonderfully refreshing ocean of Christ? I'm going to invite the music team back up. While we close, I, I want to say one more time, Jesus is better than the angels because he's better than anything. So don't let go of him. Look to him to find life. Don't get distracted or bored and look elsewhere. Spiritual activities might help you think more highly of yourself, but they will not be able to deal with your guilt. Spiritual forces will come to an end, but Christ is the never-ending king of all creation. And spiritual messages might make you feel a little better today, but only Christ is the eternal son of God who can give you everlasting life. Jesus is better than anything. So don't let go of him.